bear with me. It's always encouraging when after the summer, even your own technology doesn't recognize your face. That's, uh, that's, that's all good. Um, thank you very much, Rob. That's, that's brilliant. And um, I'm really excited about this morning as well. Um, I want to start by, I suppose, kind of lodging a, a thought with you. Have you ever believed something about the world that you knew to be true, only to find out that that actually isn't necessarily the in- entirety of, of the case? When I was growing up, I knew that my dad was the sole source of wisdom in the world. He knew absolutely everything. And at a certain point in my childhood, that illusion was shattered, unfortunately. Sorry, Dad, uh, if, you, if you're watching online. But I, I've also discovered this as a parent, right? There's, there is a sweet spot with children, and it varies from child to child. But there is a point in life where, as a dad, they will believe anything you tell them, right? And what kind of father would I be if I didn't occasionally take advantage of this fact? So there are certain things that I occasionally get in trouble with uh, making my kids believe. Some of them are um, surely out of convenience. Uh, For example, like the fact that ice cream vans only play the tune to show that they've run out of ice cream. That is true. When you hear one in the distance, they've run out. Gutted. I'm not certain whether my kids still believe that or not. There was a period of time where they did. There's also the the classic, which I have got in trouble with recently because my eldest son called my bluff on it and called his grandparent to ask them if this was true. Cheating, right? But that while bees make honey, wasps make jam. Anyone come across that one? It's true. That's why wasps are always attracted to jam sandwiches. Makes logical sense. Google has ruined this, by the way. This is completely. This was fun before children had access to devices. Um, there's also the one about, um, and this is slightly more bizarre, but bear with me. Pineapples. I was asked where do pineapples come from. I said, well, they grow them on ranches. You know, like sheep or cattle. They have little legs, and they roll around and they herd them together. It was when I got into this kind of discussion about pineapple dogs that I realised I'd taken it a little bit too far. Um, but I d- that didn't last anywhere near as long. But there, there were things that they believed about the world for a brief moment that actually turned out to be complete nonsense and changed the way that they saw the world. Right? At one point, in the first kind of year or so uh, after I met Ree, my wife, um, I knew that we were just friends, right? Because she was beautiful and amazing and obviously completely out of my league. So there was no way that she'd be interested in going out with me. So I knew that we were just friends. So when she invited me out to the cinema one evening, I invited like six other people. <laughs> this is a true story. Because I just, I, I knew we were just friends, right? I didn't think that she would be interested in, in me in, in that way. And then I had this moment of realization afterwards when she broke to me that she was, you know, she'd driven back from her parents' house, which was a good few hundred miles away, specifically to go out with me on a date. And I'd invited like six other people. I got in trouble before we even started going out. But understanding that changed suddenly the way that I saw the world. Right? There are things that we believe about life. And there's this realization that suddenly the way that I see the world can be different because of what I understand about it. Right? We're doing a series called Back to Basics. And the problem with Back to Basics is that the temptation is to assume that this is stuff we already know. Right? So 
I've, I, I had a, a moment of realization this summer, and it, it, it's funny because I, I preached a message at the start of this summer about Jacob and the fact that he fell asleep, had an experience with God, and he woke up and he had this realization of surely the Lord is in this place, but I was unaware of it. And I spoke that out at the start of this summer as a word that I believed that God was going to reveal himself to us in a new way this summer. Now, I've actually, I'm standing on the stage to testify that I found that this summer in a new way. And my realization has been a little bit kind of midlife crisis-y. But it's that in August, I turned 38. And I know, it's difficult to believe. I turned 38. Now, I became a Christian when I was 13. And I realized that I, that means that I've been a Christian for 25 years. So I've, I've been a Christian for about a quarter of a century, which makes it seem like a very, very long time. But my realization over the last few months has been that for about 25 years, there are some of the things about what I know to be true about my faith and that the foundations of faith, the basics, if you like, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, the things that I'm told to do in the Bible and how that actually works out, that haven't been fully complete in my understanding. To the extent that I think it's a little bit like if you do any sort of kind of study into things, sometimes you the more you find out about something, you more, the more you realize the less you know. Does that make sense? And it, it's felt like this summer, I've had this sudden realization that for about 25 years, it's like I've been looking through a little spy hole on the front door and claiming that I know everything about the world outside. Right? Because compared, and I think this is a point that we all need to come to in terms of realization, compared to the vastness and hugeness and immensity and richness and complexity of who God is and what he has done, we know that much. But if you were to ask me about some of the basic stuff about my my faith a couple of years ago, I'd have said, yeah, I know all about that. I, I know what it means to love God. I know what it means to love your neighbor. I know what it means to read the Bible. I know what it means to pray. You know, all of, all of that stuff, because I think sometimes we're tempted and lulled into a sense of we know all that there is to know about this because it is billed as simple. But actually, there is a richness and a complexity to it. And so what I've discovered over the last few months is that I don't know as much as I thought I did. And so I'm on a journey to try and learn more about all of that richness and vastness. And so that's what I'd like for us this morning, is to understand a little bit more about it. Because I think we've got to recognize that while we may have been staring through a keyhole or through a spy hole, that actually on the other side of that door is Jesus saying, here I am. I'm standing at the door and I knock. Right? And he who opens the door... I will come in and I will sit with him and I will eat with him. That's Revelation 3.20. Is this, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's the difference between interacting with someone through the little spy hole in the front door and opening the door and allowing them in. So this morning, what we want to do is just open that door, even if just a little crack, and allow Jesus to come in and discover something new. For me, over the last few months, that's meant digging a little bit deeper into the Bible. I've come across a series of resources and different things which have been really, really helpful for me. And the, The 21st century is fantastic because of the accessibility 
of some material that historically has been locked away in ivory towers of universities or theological study. Some ways have been locked away behind paywalls online and various other things. There's a, a resource called the BibleProject.org, which is fantastic. If you haven't come across it, please do. I'm not going to stand here and rec wholeheartedly recommend everything that they say, because I don't know everything that they say. And you need to use your own discretion and, and, and study uh, into what that is. But there are some fantastic resources available um, for you if you want to have a look into this stuff. But so we, we've started to have a, a study and a look at different things, and it's made me realize a few things about the Bible. So, for instance, the Bible isn't actually about me, which seems a really simple thing to say, right? But actually, a lot of the time when I read it, I assume that it is. So I look for the things that it says about me and to my life. The Bible is not about me. It's about Jesus, right? It's about the nation of Israel. It's about the promise of God to send a Messiah who is Jesus. And therefore, it is about God's people coming into relationship with God, us being adopted into God's family as his church. And therefore, it is about Jesus. And it, by extension, it is about us. And by extension, it's also about me. But that's the end point, not the starting point. And when I've read the Bible previously, sometimes I've been guilty of looking at it from the point of view of, this is about me. That's not where you start. Where you start is with Jesus and his salvation for all of us. And therefore, it becomes about me. The other thing I've realized is that the Bible, and again, this is a really obvious thing when you say it, the Bible wasn't written in English. It wasn't written recently. It was written thousands and thousands of years ago at various different stages in ancient languages in very different cultural contexts to the one that I live in. So when I come to it with my English Stoke-on-Trent based 30-something white perspective, right, I am in danger of missing some of the richness of the original intention by which it was written. So, we're going to have a look at a little bit of that this morning by looking at one of the really key passages in the Bible that Jesus himself quotes when he is asked the question of what is the greatest commandment, right? So, we're going to look at that passage here, Matthew 22, 34, 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, there's two main religious groups for Jesus at the, at the time, two main kind of religious hierarchies, Sadducees and Pharisees. They were quite different in their, their perspectives, and he had conversations with each of them. So he's just had a conversation with the Sadducees and silenced them in a debate he'd have won. But hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So it's our turn. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him in this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Did anyone ever read that and think, that's weird? Because it's not even in the top ten. Did anyone put those two things? It took me, I only recently put these two together, right? That is not in the Ten Commandments. We think about the Ten Commandments as being this epitome of, of the commands that God gave his people. But love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your, all your soul, and all your strength is not actually in those top ten. It's somewhere else in the Bible. So it begs the question, why did Jesus choose this one? And why was it important to him? And why was it important to the people that he's talking to? 
because this is actually quoting a passage of scripture from earlier on in the Old Testament, which was part of the ancient Hebrew Bible, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this passage of scripture was something that Israelite people, at the, certainly at the time that Jesus was, and in the centuries since, and for centuries before Jesus, would have prayed morning and evening as a reminder to themselves of this is a commandment that God has given to us. And if you've seen, if any of you have seen The Chosen, that dramatization of some aspects, you will have come across a dramatization of people praying this exact scripture. And it's a scripture called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, in um, ancient Hebrew. And it's this, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, says this, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. The people he would have been talking to would have prayed that prayer the very morning that they got up, before they had this conversation with Jesus. So he's picked something that was so key and intricate and specific to the people that he's talking to, to demonstrate a point, which is that the first and greatest commandment should always be to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The question that it begs us is, what did Jesus understand about this phrase that we don't? What was immediately obvious to him and to the people that he's talking to that isn't immediately obvious to us today? That's some of what we're going to talk about for the rest of this kind of time slot here, is just pull some of those things out, if that's okay. So, we're going to pick on a few specific words in this, and I'm just going to keep coming back to this scripture. Okay, so the first thing that comes out of this is that first phrase, hear Israel. Have you ever met someone who's got selective hearing? Everyone knows someone with selective hearing. Nobody experiences selective hearing themselves, quite clearly. I actually think there's two types of selective hearing. Um, There's the type of selective hearing that my children have. So it goes something along the lines of, Jaira, it's time for a shower. Jaira, it's time for a shower. Joe, you need to go upstairs and get ready to have a shower. It's like as a parent, we think being more specific will be helpful. Jaira, can you go upstairs, go into the bathroom, get undressed, go to the toilet if you need it, and then get in the shower, please? Nothing. Right? So as a parent, I don't know if any of you employ this. This, this is a daily routine for us, and we're so rehearsed in it. I don't think I even expect a response to the first kind of four questions, but we have to go through it because it's routine. It's only when you get to the point of going, Jaira, can you go and get in the shower, please? Three, two, and it's at one that she hears. It's weird. Every single day at one, that's when it suddenly switches back on. Right? That is selective hearing. Now, that's also contextual because I can open the biscuit tin from a distance of about three and a half miles away and she's there. He is like a bat. It's, it's, it's weird, right? That's the first kind of selective hearing. Second kind of selective hearing is one that I struggle with myself periodically. Um, and that is when you, you know when you're in a conversation with somebody and you realize that about halfway through one of their sentences, you haven't really been listening because you've been thinking about something else. And this happens to me in work quite a bit. And the, the problem where it occurs is where the, you realize that they've just started to ask you a question but you have no idea what the start of that question was. So at work, that can be a problem. It's mildly embarrassing. It can be a perilous situation when I'm talking to Ree. Because 
so the other day, for instance, I realized, we, we were halfway, th halfway through a conversation, I was paying attention, I was listening, I did understand, but for a brief moment, my mind had wandered into some sort of discussion about who would win in a fight between Superman and uh, Doctor Strange. Which is Doctor Strange, by the way. I mean, it's, it's blatantly obvious that the time stone is part kryptonite, when, when, when you think about it. But my mind had, had wandered off into something bizarre, um, and I realized halfway through the sentence that Ree had asked me to pick something up from the shops for the kids. And I realized that I had no idea what she'd actually asked me to get. And so as, as a husband, I have two choices. I can either essentially say, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. Um, what was that? Now, that is not a good option. Okay, I'm just, just going to go out on it and say that that's, that's not. The other option that I have is I can kind of make subtle inquiries to try and work out what was originally said. So you say, ah, okay. What was wrong with their old one? Kind of, you know, what kind of color would they like? I'm trying to glean. Turns out I was being asked to get water bottles. Right. So actually, those questions really kind of came out. And I, I did clear this conversation with it. Steffi's looking really worried. You know, I did clear this conversation with Reed. Sometimes in life, gentlemen, you, you just have to accept that you, you're just going to lose um, in these sorts of situations. And we're not perfect. We don't always listen. Um, but that's, that's the way. To, so there's two types of selective hearing. right? The re, why am I talking about selective hearing? The reason I'm talking about selective hearing is because there's something about this Hebrew word, shema right, that has more connotations than just sound entering your ears, okay, Shema, because Hebrew actually has far fewer words in it than our modern day English language, so what we do when we translate things, or when Bible translators translate them, is they put lots of other different possibilities, that's why there's so many different translations of the Bible, because it gives you lots of different options, right, but Shema has connotations that go beyond just sound entering your ears, what this was about was about people hearing and responding and understanding and putting a meaning on those words. It literally means kind of pay attention, focus, and obey. There's a, a connection between Shema and hear and obey to the extent that there is no ancient Hebrew word for obey. If you wanted to say, yes, I hear you and I'm going to do what you say, you, will li you would literally say, Shema, in its entirety. So what this means is, hear Israel, people of God, hear and do something with it. Hear and obey. It's the same thing that Jesus was trying to communicate in the parable of the wise man. That he who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. All they're doing is condensing that into one word, which is fascinating. I didn't know this. Fascinating. So hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Right? The Lord, name for the, the word for Lord is Yahweh, which is what, spelt in Hebrew Y-H-W-H. -H. We put vowels in so that it makes sense, right? but to us in English. But Yahweh was the specific word for Lord. Again, huge connotations that sit behind it because the people who Jesus was talking to would know the context for this word of actually who is this God? Who is the Lord? There's a passage in Exodus 3 where Moses is speaking to God at the burning bush and he asks God, if the people ask me who has sent me to Egypt... Who shall I say has sent me? 
We're going to look at it now. Exodus 3, 11 to 15. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. That phrase there is Yahweh. I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. In saying that one word in Deuteronomy originally, but Jesus quoting it to these people is saying, this is the Lord, that the Lord is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the Lord as an all-encompassing Lord. And all of the connotations that go along with who God is, uh, songs that we sing, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. All of these things are encapsulated in that one phrase. So here, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. For us, this is the God of our salvation. And it's only when we understand that fullness of context that we know what we're talking about. So hear, O Israel, hear and obey. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. The word for love in ancient Israel is ahava or ahava. A-H-A-V-A-H, right? We have so many different connotations that we've put on to love as English people, okay? So many different ways of expressing love. And actually, even when this was translated into other languages like Greek, you had different splitting up of those words of love. So you may have come across um, unconditional love or agape, um, philia being about brotherly love, storge being about familial love love and splitting out these different things, romantic love. We put self-love in place. We put all sorts of different connotations on the word love. In ancient Hebrew, ahava covers all of those bases. This is not just one particular type of love that we're talking about. This is every single expression of love that is possible to express. That is how you are to love the Lord your God. 1 John 4, 16 to 19 says this so we know and rely on the love God has for us because God is love whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them this is how love was made complete among us so that we would have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we are like Jesus there's no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment the one who fears is not made perfect in love we love because he first loved us. Ahava creates that connection with the God who is love. We love because he first loved us. So hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God in every possible expansive way that it is possible to do so. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Word for heart in Hebrew is lev. Okay? That 
has a slightly different connotation to what we have today. So we know that heart, okay, we believe or understand the word heart to be two things. One, it's a hollow blood pumping mechanism that sits in your chest. Okay, it's made of muscle and it keeps all of the circulation running around your body. Okay? The other thing that we do with heart is we connect it with feeling and with emotion. So you, you can love someone with all of your heart. That's a, a word that we've kind of extended into this society. What's really interesting, I think, is that we often make a disconnect between heart and mind, or heart and brain. So we know that we use our brains to think with, but we also kind of put this weird kind of emotional thing attached to our heart, even though we know that emotional centers sit in the brain. But there is no ancient Hebrew word for brain, which is slightly bizarre in a way. But when you think about it in the way that it articulates in the Bible, actually the heart is both the seat of emotion and seat of reason. It's the seat of emotion and feeling and thought and intellect. Mary pondered things in her heart. Abraham thought in his heart. There are all sorts of different ways that the Bible talks about heart. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Um, Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So when we are called to love the Lord your God with every expression of what love means, with all of our heart, that is with all of our feeling, all of our emotion, all of our thought, all of our intellect, all of the ways that we connect with other people, that's where heart sits in this process. Is everyone still with me? Okay. Soul. Soul has a word called nefesh, right? We live in um, a society where we've almost disconnected the word soul um, it to mean something slightly different. And it's influenced by a lot of the kind of Roman cultures and Greek cultures that came along since this original Deuteronomy was written. Because we take soul to mean that part of you that lives on after death, right? That's the kind of cultural connotation associated with soul. That came after this was written. This is not the understanding of soul that the ancient Israelites had, right? They had an understanding that your soul essentially was the essence of who you were, the entirety of that essence. The, the word nefesh is translated in a number of different ways in the Bible. It's actually translated throat, in some, in some other, slightly bizarrely. I have no idea about this, it's some, slightly bizarrely. And therefore, that phrase of as the deer in Psalm, where is it, Psalm 42, verse one to two. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirst longs after you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That, that word soul is nefesh because it means throat in ancient Hebrew, and hence the connection with thirst. It also is translated to mean me, as in I, as in the person. Psalm 119, 175 says, let me live that I may praise you. That's let my nefesh live, that my nefesh may praise you. So it is meant to be the entirety of who I am, not just the bit that goes beyond after I die, but actually all of me, here and now, not just in the future. So love the Lord your God in everything that that means, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with the essence, the entirety of who I am, and with all of your strength. This one I found most fascinating at all, because the word strength here is miod. Okay? Miod doesn't mean strength. 
which again, do, do you remember I started with the more you find out about this, the less you realize you know, right? Doesn't mean strength because it's translated in so many different ways within the Bible. What it essentially means is muchness, lots of. It's a word that you would insert into a sentence to take what's around it and multiply it and make it bigger and more extravagant and more expansive. It's the same word, Genesis 1, God creates creation and he saw all of it and he said that it was very good. Very, in that sentence, is miod. It takes what God has done, the good that God sees, and expands it, makes, places an emphasis on it. It's like an exclamation mark that goes on there. Um, in Numbers 14, verse 7, the Israelites are exploring the promised land, and they come back, and they say, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Exceedingly is miod. Right? We take it and we go, strength. Yes. It's not that kind of strength. It is taking what is around it and multiplying it and making it much, much more. So when we go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5, what we get is Israel, all of God's people, right? Hear, listen, respond, obey. Take these words and put them into practice. The Lord is your God. Right? The all-encompassing God, the God who provides, the God who heals, the God who sees you, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will be. And you are to love with every expression that love means. The Lord your God, with all of your heart, that is both your emotions and the way that you think what you feel and how you reason and how you interact with other people, with all of your soul, the very essence of who you are. And you are to do it extravagantly, with expanse. Father, I want to thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the richness of your word. God, I thank you for the resources and things that you've put in place, but God, I thank you that you are speaking to us through your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would teach us what it is to put these words into practice. Father, that you would teach us to love you with every part of us, not just our intellectual thoughts, not just our feelings, but with all of us that you would teach us to love you with the very fiber of our being. And you would help us to do that more and more and more extravagantly, day after day after day. Amen.